0: Podcasts on WLRN are funded in part by Make a Wish Southern Florida, whose own podcast, World of Wishes, features inspiring, uplifting, and memorable stories from wish kids, their families, medical professionals, and more. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The kook is kaput. After more than 25 years, Cuba is doing away with its dual currency system and the Cuban convertible peso. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Tim Paget. The move is
0: expected to bring skyrocketing inflation, even as the island's economy is in tatters. What does the change mean for Cubans?
2: I don't think most people are ready for it.
0: And how could it impact Cuban-Americans trying to help family and friends on the island? Today on The
1: Sunshine Economy, the Cuban currency unification. Also on today's program, we introduce you to Sherry Rudolph, a self-described serial entrepreneur running a small cleaning service based in Lauder Hill.
3: This is the first time that I've taken a risk like this in terms of investing this heavily.
1: How she has been navigating the pandemic economy. It's all ahead on the Sunshine Economy. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Tim
0: Paget. It is a unique and bewildering construct of the Cuban economy. Two currencies with two different values. The dual currencies have come to define Cuba as much as the island's communist political system and state-run economic system have. Now,
1: after more than a quarter of a century, Cuba is getting rid of its two-money market and unifying its currencies into a single unit, the Cuban Peso. The change is expected to bring skyrocketing inflation, even as the island's economy is in tatters because of the COVID-19 pandemic and the Trump era economic restrictions on Americans doing business with and sending money to Cuba. It has been confusing and complex
0: trying to deal with two different currencies. Transitioning to one will be difficult for Cubans already dealing with long lines for basic items like food and struggling to pay for basic necessities like electricity. And it will almost certainly add to the strain of Cuban-Americans in South Florida whose economic aid helps relatives survive
1: back in Cuba. So first, Tim, I think it's helpful to understand how Cuba ended up with two currencies in the first place. Let's start in 1959. (music) Cubans were listening to the breakout album Celia Cruz had just released with Sonora Montancera. One of its songs, Que Bea es Cuba, How Beautiful is Cuba. The music embodied the era's optimism, which, of course, was very short-lived under Castro's revolution. Cruz herself left and became a symbol of Cuban exiles, but the currency the new government introduced has remained, the Cuban peso, the CUP. Its nickname is the Coupe. It's the official currency on the island. And it was the only currency until Cuba's political and economic patron, the Soviet Union, collapsed in the early 1990s. The Soviet support of the Cuban economy evaporated with it, and Cuba didn't really have much to trade with the rest of the world. And the rest of the world didn't accept the coup for payment. So it all left Cuba in a very tight spot. The currency that it had introduced in 1959, though, remained the same. So, in 1994,
0: with Cuba's economy in the frightening freefall known as the Special Period, the communist government introduced a second currency. This was the same year Carlos Varela released La política no cabe en la azucarera. Politics doesn't fit in the sugar bowl. A more pessimistic musical take amid the economic deprivation. <laughs>
2: mucho calor la
0: The new currency, the Cuban convertible peso, was nicknamed the CUC, or CUC. It was valued at one U.S. dollar. The idea was to use this new currency mainly in foreign transactions like the tourism industry. It would help bring in desperately needed dollars and other hard currency. But now the Cuban economy was supposed to run on two different currencies. There was the
1: original CUC from
4: 1959.
0: Cuba, Cuba. Cuba, and there was the kook. From the special period.
2: Two
0: currencies acting like two songs from different eras different rhythms, different keys, different everything. And they created a two-channel
1: economy, but not one in stereo. One economic channel operated with coops. Most workers who work for government firms were paid in coups. It was the currency primarily used by the state sector, which dominated the official Cuban economy. The other Cuban economic channel operated
0: with kooks. Cubans working in restaurants and hotels, tourism jobs, and other private sector
1: work got kooks. One kook equaled one US dollar. So if you were paid in coops, it took twenty four of them to equal one kook. The average salary was about eight hundred coops per month. That's about thirty three kooks. It meant something priced in kooks could be incredibly expensive for someone paid in coops. And paying for something in coops kept the prices
0: artificially low. Now comes January 1st, 2021, or Day
1: Zero, as the communist government called it. Kick out the kook and keep the coop. The effect is Cuba's new single currency, now just the peso, has to drop in value, decreasing its purchasing power, like a song slowing Cuba, down.
4: Cuba, qué linda es Cuba. Cuba qué bella es. ¿Quién no ha visto de Cuba?
1: It takes 24 Cuban pesos to equal one U.S. dollar, and that value is expected to drop further in the weeks and months ahead. It means less buying power for ordinary Cubans. And so the Cuban government says it will raise salaries, raise the minimum wage fivefold. In fact, that puts more pesos in the pockets of Cubans just as prices are rising, helping feed inflation more. The government calls it the Tarea de Ordenamiento,
0: the Monetary Ordering Project. But the early days don't seem orderly for most Cubans, like business owner Marta Deus.
4: I think the unification of the currency was needed, but not in this way. The reality is a problem of communication. There are a lot of complaints right now because people are saying, well, you told me I can play with both currencies for six months, and right now you are telling me no. So people are changing in the morning because they need to pay many
0: things. I spoke with Deus in the middle of last week. It was just a few days after day zero. We had to postpone our phone call because she got delayed in line at her bank. Like most Cubans, she was busy exchanging her remaining CUCs for regular pesos. Because in shop after shop in Havana, she'd seen signs reading, No Kooks. This despite the government's promise that Cubans could use both currencies for the next six months. The Cuban government may have mandated the exchange rate of 24 pesos for each U.S. dollar, but a week after Day Zero, the rate was already dropping.
5: My mom in Havana told me today that there was a restaurant that she went to.
0: This is Ubaldo Huerta. He co-founded and helps run Fonoma, a company that allows people outside Cuba to pay for cellular and Internet connections on the island. He grew up in Havana and now lives in Barcelona
5: that it was labeled in the menu an exchange rate of $1 for 30 pesos. That was just labeled there in the menu, in the restaurant, in Old Havana. My mom just got a WhatsApp from my mother. And it's just very common knowledge that the street price right now is about 40 pesos to $1.
0: That means the Cuban peso has dropped 40% in value compared to the government's official
1: exchange rate. Cariel Gonzalez was an accounting professor at the University of Havana for 12 years. He now helps run a remittance company based in Switzerland called Cuba Pay. He still lives in Havana. He gets paid in euros, so he's insulated from the currency troubles, but he still gets sticker shock seeing the prices in the devalued peso.
2: The other day I went with my wife and we went to bar's, and we drank beers, and uh, we ate something very light. When we asked for the check, it was 900 pesos, something very wild. <laughs> so I looked to my wife and I said, "Wow, <laughs> this is something
1: uh strange for us, because
2: <laughs> you know a, a check of
1: 900 pesos, wow, <laughs> that's about forty dollars. It wasn't the amount." on the check. It was the denominations of the bills needed to pay the check. The unification and devaluation has even changed Cuban ATMs.
2: The ATMs used to render uh bills of five, ten, uh and twenty pesos and now they're delivering uh one hundred pesos, two hundred pesos bills.
0: And as the value of the Cuban peso keeps dropping as expected, that will put more pressure on the Cuban economy, on Cubans living with the peso, on relations between the island and the U.S., and on efforts by people in South
1: Florida to help friends and family in Cuba. Still to come, bringing two currencies together leads to several possible outcomes in the future. I dare to
2: say that this is the the beginning of (laughs) something.
1: We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks again for listening and supporting public radio. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Tim Paget. For the first time in a quarter
0: of a century, Cuba is moving toward a single currency. It began the official transition on New Year's Day. Day zero is what the communist government called it. Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel announced the long-expected unification of its two currencies back in October, just days after the Central Bank of Cuba denied rumors about it. Government
1: talk of unification goes back at least seven years. The implosion of the Venezuelan economy over the past several years, tighter restrictions from America, and then the COVID-19 pandemic decimating the tourism industry that underpins Cuba's economy, all finally conspired to force the monetary reckoning.
2: I dare to say that this is the, the beginning of something, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Let's say it for now, a market economy. It's the opening of a
1: market economy. Cariel Gonzalez in Havana is among the hopeful ones about what unification may lead to. He's a former University of Havana accounting professor who now is the representative on the island for Cubape. That's an online remittance company based in Switzerland. He is paid in euros, so he's able to avoid the painful devaluation that's part of unifying Cuba's two currencies. That's going to inflict a lot of economic harm on the island that's already reeling. According to official government forecasts, the Cuban economy shrank by 11% last year, its second straight year of contraction and its worst performance since the early 1990s when the Soviet Union collapsed. Cuba was forced into a series of economic reforms back then, too, including attempts to attract foreign hard currency. There have been several efforts since to make small changes updating the island's central planning-style economy. Paladares, small family-run restaurants, and quinto Propistas, entrepreneurs running their own private companies. They've been more tolerated rather than encouraged, though. You have to uh, unleash these productivity forces you have to let all the
2: entrepreneurs uh, do their things. You have to make things easy for private businesses. The government has put a large part of hope that the Cuban people respond to this process by uh, working, really, really working, really making the money, uh, having its worth in Cuba. You know, Cuba—it's a country where most people, or I couldn't say most people, but you—you—you uh, you, you could work and leave, or you could do a little work and leave, and that's not what happens most of the world. I was talking to a friend the other day, and I'm saying that now we're really entering in uh, in what we call a,
1: a market economy. Developing a wholesale market on the island outside of the state enterprises is one ingredient. Allowing private businesses to legally have employees is another. But there's a long record of reform pledges in Cuba not making it into actual economic practice.
2: If you read or if you follow uh, some of the speeches and some of the programs where government uh, officials are talking and going, you could read between the lines that we're entering this uh, new process of market economy. That's how that's this is how the world
0: works. Cariel, tell us what you're seeing between the lines in those speeches uh, that indicates that the government is now ready and willing to let the private sector become stronger in Cuba. Tell us what you're seeing between the lines.
2: Well, between the lines, I'm seeing that there's uh, an implicit acknowledgement that how it used to work, it doesn't work anymore. Basically, the economic system, the economic rules that were in use in Cuba, it didn't work. It's a truth everyone knew, uh, but well, if you hear it by a a high official, well, that's something. The other factor, it's uh, one of the things between the lines that you asked me, is the, the fact that the Biden administration is coming up this January 20th.
0: Not surprisingly, Gonzalez's hopeful outlook isn't shared by Cubans on this side of the Florida Straits, especially not by exile economist Emilio Morales. Morales heads the Havana Consulting Group in Miami. He's watching Cuba's currency unification process as closely as anybody, and he calls it hard economic shock therapy for Cubans. Morales says the so-called monetary ordering presents one really big fear and one really big hope. His big fear? That the economic disruption caused by the currency reform, especially skyrocketing prices on the island, could result in the disappearance of Cuba's fledgling private businesses if the government doesn't lift the suffocating regulations it's placed on them. Bajo esas condiciones, es muy difícil que el sector privado pueda sobrevivir. No tiene de Morales points out that after President Obama normalized relations with Cuba six years ago, Cuba's half a million private entrepreneurs, or cuentapropistas, started taking off. But they took off too high to suit the old Communist Guard. So the regime cracked down on the private sector again. Then came President Trump's crackdown on U.S. travel and remittances to Cuba, which cut even deeper into Cuenta Propista business. Add the pandemic, and now the currency disruption, and Morales says it will be very difficult for Cuba's private sector to survive.
2: El liderazgo
0: But that brings us to Morales' big hope, that the currency chaos may also spell the end of Cuba's failed economic system, just as that communist old guard begins to die out. The Cuban government hopes the peso unification will help increase Cuban exports. But Morales points out you first actually have to produce goods and services to export but that's not likely to happen because there are no accompanying reforms to make either the state sector or private sector more productive, which to Morales makes this whole exercise the perfect Trojan horse, he says. Only this time, he adds, it's the Trojans themselves who built the horse out of their own stupidity, fear, and obsession with controlling everything.
6: Still
1: to come, de la the government. Cuban quinto propista spirit meets the uncertainty of currency unification.
4: They should be uh, more prepared for to help this to be less traumatic for the private sector. Uh, it's difficult for me to sleep for many days. <laughs>
1: This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening and supporting Public Radio. I'm Tom Hudson.
0: And I'm Tim Padgett. Most economists agree Cuba's move to a single currency is a necessary one. But they also say it won't save Cuba's moribund economy unless the communist regime does much more to open up the island's growing but heavily restricted
1: private sector. Those 600,000 or so private business owners, known as quintapropistas, are considered the future, not just of Cuba's economy, but of social reform there as well. Havana entrepreneur Marta Deus is emblematic
0: of that Quinta Propista energy and the anxieties Cuban entrepreneurs face right now. Deus spoke with me by phone last week from the island, but only after our interview was delayed an hour because she was still in a long line at her bank changing convertible pesos, or CUCs, for regular Cuban pesos, which are now Cuba's sole currency— like most Cubans, she'd seen the signs in Cuban shops warning they were no longer accepting CUCs for payment, even though the government said the convertible pesos wouldn't be phased out for another six months.
4: Supposed to be many of the state-owned restaurants or or the gas station or that you could go with the CUC or CUP and you could pay with both currencies. In the TV, uh, the, the government said, no, you can pay everywhere with the both currency but the reality is not the reality is you have to pay many of them in only COP so people are changing the money very quickly not because they need it because they need to 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 pay many things because they don't have another way.
0: Navigating that currency confusion is crucial for Deus. She runs three private businesses that employ a total of almost forty people. There's an accounting firm called
4: deus, expertos
0: contables, a restaurant and market food delivery service called
4: Mandao,
0: and a bilingual business magazine called
4: Negolution.
0: That's a combination of the Spanish word negocio meaning business and revolution. Like the economist Deus is convinced Cuba's communist revolution has no choice now but to accommodate an entrepreneurial revolution.
4: We are like more than 30% of the working population, which is something very important. So we need to survive in this moment because it's our responsibility to make this country better in the long term.
0: Toward that end, Deus believes Cuba's long overdue currency reform is a good thing. Its execution so far is another thing.
4: I think in the medium and long term, we'll be positive. It shows, like, maturity of our, of our government to finally decide to make the unification of the currency that is so needed for us. But what I say is they should be uh, more prepared for them. Uh For example, some measures before to help this to be a uh, less traumatic for the private sector. Uh, it's difficult for me to sleep for many days. <laughs>
0: Keeping Deus awake at night are things like a lack of guidance on whether her businesses should still be taking the outgoing convertible pesos as payment, especially since the state-run enterprises that her private companies sometimes need to buy goods and services from may not be accepting those CUCs
4: anymore. We have to give clients options because they still have CUC. So that makes a super complicated situation because there are many changes in one moment. The business is that we have to be super flexible and change the prices maybe every week or every month. We have to be very creative. It's a lot of work. There are many meetings, thinking where what are the strategies we have to take.
0: Deus says private businesses like hers could be more flexible, creative, and strategic if the Cuban government would simply take off their regulatory handcuffs and include a more comprehensive private sector code as part of the currency reform. Five years ago, Cuba did give private enterprises legal recognition. And last summer, in response to the economic tailspin caused by the pandemic, the government said quintapropistas could import and export. But they still have to do it through state-run companies, greatly weakening the import-export incentive. And they still can't access Cuba's wholesale markets or formal sources of capital and credit at home or abroad.
4: You need real changes that adapt to the new situation. I think the first thing that I would ask is a small and medium businesses law, a real legal structure for us, make us easily to get investment, from here, from abroad, my three companies are in my name. All the responsibility is in my name. But if I, I want to grow, I can't go to the bank. If I find an investor, I can't put it in my businesses. It's very complicated here to get money to open the business. You can have that idea, but you need to have some money. So if you open that, I mean, it's, it's super important. Super important
0: not just for private entrepreneurs, says Deus, but for the government too. Like most economists, she sees the writing on Cuba's wall. The economic disruption of the currency reform could result in mass layoffs in the state sector, joblessness that only Cuba's private sector can absorb if it's allowed to grow.
4: And what are you going to do with all these people? And what are you going to do with the people that you have eliminated, the subsidized you gave them? Because uh, bah, the new, the new reality, the new reforms. So you don't, you are not giving them as uh, on an another opportunity to work. So they are saying we need to be more productive. We need to work, but yes, but, but in, in what, what, in which job? You want them to work, but you haven't opened the private sector to create jobs.
0: Instead, as part of the currency reform, the Cuban government last month announced that foreign investors for once can have majority or in some cases complete ownership of certain Cuban businesses. But most economists say under the current conditions, it's unlikely foreign investors will be flocking to the island anytime soon. So Deus feels the regime is betting on the wrong economic horse.
4: Your bet is on the foreign investment law. But I think it's not the, the right bet. The, the right bet is in the private sector because the private sector is more dynamic.
0: Dynamic, but under serious threat. This year, thanks largely to the pandemic, the number of Cuba's private enterprises has dropped by
1: more than a third. Still to come, converting foreign currency into cell phone and internet service for Cubans.
7: People that get remittances from the U.S., if they can get the US dollar from the relative in in the US that remittances has more value now, well, at least that's what they perceive in the moment where there is most needed. <laughs>
1: We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Don't miss an episode of our program. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast by searching Sunshine Economy on your podcast app and then hitting subscribe. Thank you. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Tim Paget. Ubaldo
0: Huerta and Iram Centelles both grew up and studied technology in Havana. They both started their own online companies, Huerta in the 1990s and Centelles about
1: 15 years later. They both left Cuba and have been business partners since 2012 in Phenoma. It's a web service that buyers use to pay for cell phone or Internet service for someone else in Cuba called top offs, like topping off cell phone minutes or Internet time. Say someone in Kendall wants to pay for the cell service of a family member or friend in Olguin. They can pay Phenoma in U.S. dollars. Phanoma then converts it into Cuban pesos, depositing the money in the digital
0: wallet of the recipient in Cuba to be used to buy time from Etexa, that's the state-owned telecommunications monopoly on the island. Under the Trump administration, remittances from the United States to Cuba have been limited to $1,000 every three months, and only to family members. Fenoma's business provides exiles a way to get around those restrictions and augment their financial support of family in Cuba. It is a platform for someone outside Cuba to pay for a specific service for someone on the island,
1: in this case, cell or Internet service. We spoke with Santayas and Huerta last week. Santeas was in Havana visiting family. Huerta was at home in Barcelona.
5: The biggest change in the growth of Phenoma occurred during the COVID in March, we saw an increase in about 30% or so of volume of top-ups.
0: Baldo, why did you see that increase in volume in March uh, as the pandemic began?
5: Well, obviously, people want to be in touch with their families. There is more, more. I think, people um, working from home in Cuba, uh, even knows you know why there there is more demand uh for um connectivity in the island there is also the fact that i guess people in all over the world some people used to go to say um physical premises you know to pay in cash for the for the top ups and with the lockdowns and all that and especially in the us mm-hmm. perhaps people were you know doing the, the online um, the remittances, just in the same way, it's in general like online, you know, e-commerce grew, right? It was experienced growth during the pandemic. People were at home. It's very hard to tell why um, that happened. Also, the network in Cuba improved. The 4G um, makes it. Um, Cuba has now uh, a network that is some very. It's resilient, somewhat resilient. It used to be very bad, I mean, keep in mind that internet connectivity in the island is very new. it's only two year old it started in two thousand eighteen so the network mature. sure people do video calling um there are more and more people you know that rely on that sort of um top up and um uh from the 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 family and uh, just just uh, I don't know it's just it's it's very difficult yeah. to place. Um, but the, but the, but it grew it's certainly about thirty percent or so since the since March and uh yeah, it keeps growing keeps growing the the volume of 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 top ups to Cuba
0: not coincidentally, the artist protest movement told me that four g helped them as
5: well <laughs> absolutely it's changing the life, the culture of the island is people more connected and um it's changed the economy, um, so it was just a silver lining in the middle of, uh, of the pandemic uh, for people to be more connected. And obviously the volume of regular phone calls has dropped and has moved to WhatsApp calling and um, right. et cetera.
1: Adam, how does the devaluation of the uh, Cuban Peso, the CUP, the coup affect Phenoma's pricing? That it offers?
7: People inside Cuba pay for the top ups uh, that get some balance in the, in the cell phones uh, accounts of the relative in Cuba. So basically, uh, in our end, what, what changed is that the end value that we are transmitting to the cell phones in Cuba changed from CUC to CUP. So, but basically, Etexa keep the, the prices. They just uh, multiply them for by by twenty five.
1: Etexa is the Cuban government-owned telecommunications monopoly.
7: We are presenting new prices to our end customers because change the way we send money. the The price points also change. But basically that's all the the affectation that, that our business gets. We are representing different price points. Here in Cuba it's a totally different story. What I mean by that is that our business is, is it doesn't affect the way our business that, that we conduct business because it's the same thing, just a change in the currency that the end user is getting in their, in the cell phone. People in Cuba, they're trying to figure out how to, to adapt to, to this new scale, new currency. They are having a hard time trying to understand, trying to, to make the brain understand the new the new scenario because there's a much bigger
5: numbers. Ubaldo? We continue to top up cell phones, you know, the same way that we used to top up them before. So... We the average the, the previously the the average top up will be 20 CUC and now the average top up is 500 pesos. The wallet that used to be denominated in CUC used to be in the order of 20, 25. You know, people would that would be the balances and the the minutes were priced in that currency. And now the um, the prices have been multiplied by 25, and the wallets are now in the hundreds of pesos. It would be very easy for someone to have a cell phone credit or wallet that is more than the, certainly more than the, the minimum uh, monthly uh, salary or, or, or certainly much more than even the average one. So yeah, that's a new reality. It's very confusing you know, for people to adapt that.
1: If the economist predictions are correct, uh, many expect that exchange rate to change considerably to see the devaluation of the CUP against the dollar and the inflation of prices. Do you anticipate keeping pace with that if that is the case?
5: We're certainly not sure how is that going to work out for us. We, don't, we, we This is this just this is the sixth day into this new world, we're not sure how is that going to play out. Um, this is a very complex uh, situation um, because these top-ups are not available in the island, They're just uh, only outside the island. We really cannot speculate how it's going to play out. Yeah,
7: but but we are not exposed to that inflation because that is the street price as the Central Bank of Cuba and all the institutions keep the the dollar fixed uh, 24 with the CUP. In that sense, we are not getting affected by the inflation or the devaluation
5: of the CUP. Yeah, that's correct. But still, if the street price of the peso in Cuba just six days into the new currency grows very, uh, diverges widely from the central bank um, price, who knows what the distortions that could occur in the economy.
1: As you've operated, Phenoma, you've seen a lot of different restrictions particularly come in and out of fashion as it regulates the ability of Americans to send support to family members and friends and businesses on the island. What are you anticipating, Ram, since you're in Havana now visiting family, the need or the desire or the want of Cubans on the island as they are just on the cusp of experiencing what could be a very painful currency unification, lots of inflation, uh, a drop in their own purchasing power on the island, the logic goes
7: that right now there are two currencies, basically, U.S. dollar and Q and Peso, CUP. People are seeing the CUP, the versus the dollar. And uh, there are a lot of people that get remittances from the U.S. and they can imagine or, or not imagine, that it's, uh, it's a fact that if they can get the USD, the US dollar from the relative in in the US, that remittances has more value now, at least that's what they perceive. And in the moment where they there is most needed. So what I perceive when I talk to people here that is that they want that regulation reverted and they talk about how the new administration can change all that, they put hopes on that.
0: That was Iram Centellas in Havana and Ubaldo Huerta in Barcelona, Spain. They are the co-founders of Phenoma, a company that allows people
1: outside Cuba to pay for cellular and internet services for people on the island. Still to come on our program, how a small cleaning company in Lauder Hill is surviving the pandemic economy and looking for new business to grow
3: we uh, pivoted to disinfection services and that has um, improved. And that's pretty much what's our primary uh, source of business right now.
1: This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Be sure to follow us on social media. Look for WLRN on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Tim Paget. Almost every week on this program since September, we've checked in with a banker, baker, and bartender to hear how they're getting along in the pandemic economy in South Florida. The bartender, Keisha Scott, left Boynton Beach at the end of 2020 and moved back to her hometown of Austin, Texas. We will keep hearing from the banker and baker in the weeks ahead, and they'll be joined by a new voice this week, Sherry Rudolph. She's a small serial entrepreneur who has run her own commercial cleaning company for 14 years. Before the pandemic, she had four part-time employees providing janitorial services to homes and businesses. Her business was hit first by people not wanting others inside their homes, and then the work-from-home movement keeping offices empty. She's been able to keep the company open with the help of a small business administration loan and the federal government's Paycheck Protection Program. She's also expanded her services to include disinfectant cleaning in direct response to COVID-19. And she's investing in the firm's future.
3: My name is Sherry Rudolph, and I uh, live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and I am a serial entrepreneur. Um, I have been the owner and a founder of Legally Clean for the last uh, 14 years. It's located in Lauder Hill. We uh, primarily uh, do commercial and post-construction and also we do uh, residential move-in, move out, that kind of thing. I'm from uh, Detroit, Michigan. Uh, I've lived in Florida for the last 20 years. I um, have lived here mostly because of the weather. Uh I miss my family and friends but I love the weather more. <laughs> How I started the business is I was working for a nonprofit in 2003 and I looked at my first paycheck and I said oh my god I can't live like this I'll starve to death. And because I had owned rental property and, um, in Detroit and had um had supervised people with restoring homes and cleaning and painting and whatever um, when i started researching um businesses to start uh, i was thinking well it has to be something with uh, low overhead and, and low investment and so i started looking and i saw a cleaning service was one of those businesses that you could start with low investment my mother, who's since deceased 12 years ago, I called her, uh, her, and my father, who had invested all this money in a college education, <laughs> to, to tell them that I was starting a cleaning service. And my mother said, cleaning? You don't like cleaning? <laughs> so I said, no, but I know how to put jobs and people together. And so therefore, I think that I'll be good at this. She said, well, now that makes sense to me. You <laughs> see. There has been some ups and downs with it. Uh, primarily uh, with Legally Clean, we lost uh, all of our residential customers uh, when COVID hit. Some of the commercial um, was also lost. Uh, however, we also do post-construction cleaning, which continued because po- because construction contractors continue to work. Uh, I would say a quarter of our business was residential. And uh, at the beginning of um, 2020, um, particularly March uh, things started segueing away from cleaning activity. We were very hard hit. Some of the commercial fell off. It was very, very difficult at first because we didn't know you know how we were going to uh, survive, given the fact that um, most of our commercial and our residential uh, customers put us on hold until afterwards. in addition to that, I was about to sign a contract with a major a multifamily community that would have given me um, a substantial increase in income. It failed to develop uh, due to COVID. Well, I had to lay off uh, workers um, and started doing uh, some of the work myself. The um, But the commercial then started to take a dive as well as more and more people were off work. And because people were not in the offices, um, then you know there was no need for cleaning service. So, so, so initially, so initially it was just residential that fell off, but then as time progressed, the commercial fell off as well. We uh, pivoted to disinfection services and that has um, improved. And that's pretty much what's our primary uh, source of business right now is the disinfection service that has helped tremendously because it is a very lucrative industry. I've been able to, um, secure those types of jobs for commercial companies in particular they have been uh, really lucrative in terms of the work you know that we do and the time frame also it doesn't take very long to do it I've made smaller investments with uh, SEOs before search engine optimization um, but this is the first time that I've taken a risk like this in terms of investing this heavily into uh, legally clean um, it's almost a month. For a small company, that's a pretty big investment. I have started to see the uh, revenue increase as a result of using the SEO. Already, I've already gotten back like half of the money that I invested for the month.
1: Sherry Rudolph owns janitorial services company Legally Clean. It's based in Lauder Hill. We will hear from her in the weeks ahead about how she is navigating the pandemic economy. Ginger Martin is the banker we've been keeping tabs with most weeks. She's the CEO of American National Bank based in Fort Lauderdale. Last week was a historic week with the insurrection on Capitol Hill during the Electoral College certification vote. She's focused, though, on the next round of economic stimulus with more money for Paycheck Protection Program forgivable loans. Last year, her bank processed about 500 of those loans, totaling around $70 million in
8: all. We did get notification on Wednesday, January 6th, of the fact that SBA is opening up the payroll protection uh, application process, and they're calling it draw number two. They're giving certain institutions a head start, and that does not include banks though. There's four types that uh, they call community uh, financial institutions. And even though that word sounds like it would include a in community bank, you know, it doesn't. Because of the fact they said community financial institutions, I had customers emailing me saying, hey, you know what, so are we gonna be able to start on, on Wednesday? And then here's what the SBA told us. They said, okay, hey, and the rest of you, it'll be sometime after Wednesday. So what we did, at the end of uh, last week. And what we're doing first thing Monday is going to be uh, our planning, uh, getting ready for when we're gonna be able to submit for our customers. It's gonna require less work on a borrower standpoint because if they had a loan with us before, we're gonna be able to calculate their loan amount based on what they provided us last time. And the only thing they got to do is fill out the new application and certify and show um, Documentation that they had a reduction in their revenue in 2020 for one quarter compared to that same quarter for 2019. Um, what we did, we started asking our customers to say, "Hey, do you think you're you, do you think you're going to be eligible?" And as uh, of uh, you know Friday, uh, we had like 50 of our of our customers that said yes. You know they're going to be going for that uh, draw number two. Those people are ready, ready to go and are anxious. I think with the stimulus to individuals and then this to business, you know, hopefully that's going to keep the economy moving forward. And we know that that's good for, you know, for for everyone.
1: That's American National Bank CEO Ginger Martin. Pilar Guzman Zavala runs Half Moon Empanadas. She is moving full speed ahead this week toward opening two new locations, the first since the pandemic.
6: One is going to be in Penguin Pines, we're going to do a co-branding space with Misha's Cupcakes, uh, which I love her product. And so it's going to be uh, in her store, half of it now is going to be a half-moon store. And then we're going to be opening in Jackson Hospital, in the food court of the Jackson Hospital. So we're very excited about those two opportunities. It's as basic as getting with the carpenter (laughs) and making sure that the cabinets and the sizes of everything is correct. So I'm doing that this week. And I'm teaching somebody in my team to do this, right? Because I shouldn't be doing these kinds of meetings. I'm in that process of like, you know, delegating that. And hopefully when I have the new director of operations, uh, that person will be able to take that. But for now, I have to get together with the carpenter. We have to order the equipment. So we have the specs. Uh, We're going to need some of the equipment. The other part is going to, we're going to use it from the FIU store, which is still closed. For us not to spend money, we're going to use that equipment and bring it. You know, some of that is going to come from FIU. We're going to need to hire maybe three people uh, for the week. February 15 should be for both of them. Hopefully we can do that.
1: That's Half Moon Empanada's CEO, Pilar Guzman Zavala, the baker of our baker, banker, and starting this week, cleaner trio of women we will check in with each week as they navigate the pandemic economy. You can check out our website at WLRN.org, look for the radio tab, and then click on Sunshine Economy. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tim Paget, And I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.
0: Podcasts on WLRN are funded in part by Make-A-Wish Southern Florida, whose own podcast, World of Wishes, features inspiring, uplifting, and memorable stories from wish
2: kids, their families, medical professionals, and more. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.